Well, having finished our, or completed, I guess finished means no more, but completed at least our intent in our study of uh, the book of Hebrews last week, uh, we'll begin our new study next week uh, looking at uh, the book of Jonah. Uh, this morning, what we want to do is turn our attention uh, to the Lord in, in a way that prepare us to come to the table that we may uh, experience uh, the grace that God has promised as we come in faith uh, to that table. And to do that, I uh, want to turn our attention to a verse that's probably familiar to many, most, uh, if not all who are here, uh, to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Hear the word of God, as the Lord has inspired the Apostle Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of God. Let's pray. Holy God, we we do come with thanksgiving. We come that uh, you uh, have demonstrated your care for us in uh, numerous ways. Particularly, we recognize how you have provided for us and ultimately recognize how you have provided for us in your Son, Christ. As Peter has prayed, we pray with thanksgiving that you have revealed yourself perfectly in your Son, but also through the writings of the prophets and the apostles and recorded that, that we may know your will, your way, and even about ourselves. And we pray now that you would speak to us by the power of the Spirit, who, the same Spirit who inspired these words, that dwells within all who believe, uh, to speak to us as we gather today, that we may consider your truth, and we may align our lives with it. Lord, bless us that we may be an honoring uh, people to you, a pleasing people to you, and a blessing to the community where you have planted us. To you be all praise, not only in the church, but throughout the world. This we pray in the incomparable name of Christ, our Redeemer King. Amen. You may be familiar with the old parable of the three blind men who stumble upon an elephant for the first time. For those few who may not have heard it, this is how the parable goes. There are three blind men, close friends, as they were walking about, they stumbled upon an elephant, having never encountered one before. Uh, They didn't know what an elephant was. They'd heard of one, but they didn't know what one was. Uh, But somebody told them this was an elephant, and so each man, excited about finding out what an elephant actually was, they reached out, but each touched a different part of the elephant. The first man touched the trunk and said, oh, an elephant must be like a great snake. The second man touched the leg and said, no, an elephant must be like a a very large tree, because this is a tree trunk. The third man touched the, the side or the torso of the elephant and said, an elephant must be like a wall or, or a great boulder. And the parable explains and been told in many, many different ways, and you can touch different parts and come up with different things, but the whole point of it is each one of them uh, came to this conclusion that the elephant was their own experience, their own perspective, not recognizing that there was more to the whole uh, that was even greater than what they had experienced. And this parable comes to mind when I think of this verse. 
And I'll explain why in a moment. But as we begin, as we begin, as we look at this passage, the Apostle Paul is essentially beginning at least the, the substance of, of this monumental letter with a, a seemingly peculiar assertion. And up to this point, he's just doing his greetings, and there's certainly theological truth that is wrapped up in it. Uh, but here in verse 16, he, he begins the, the substance of uh, the letter. And he begins with this statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I have to admit that when I first read this, and the same thought pops into my head, at least in memory, is, is this, this is what is my, comes into my mind, is, well, who said you were? I mean, it seems kind of like a very defensive way to begin uh, the message. The first thing you say is, I'm not ashamed of this. He's mentioned the word gospel uh, three times in the opening letters. He just uses the word. Uh, but one of the things I also notice in this is that he, he never, he doesn't actually define it. He, he doesn't define it in this verse. He doesn't define it in the, in the verses before. Now, obviously, we're in the book of Romans, and if you read the book of Romans, you're going to get a great understanding of what the gospel is, illustrated and defined in, in many different aspects of it. Uh, but at least at this point, if you're reading this for the first time, and even as we're looking at it this morning, we recognize the first thing the apostle says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and he doesn't even tell us what it is that he is not particularly ashamed of. Now, what he does do is he gives some descriptions here that we see in verses 16 and 17, but they are not definitions. They are descriptions of what the gospel does, reasons why he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed because it's the power of God for the salvation of those who are believing. He's not ashamed because it's the revelation of righteousness, in other words, what God has done, and so we can learn something about the character of God. And so they are approximating, but they're not clear definitions of what the gospel is. But recognizing that, it prompts me to ask two more important questions. What is this gospel of which the apostle is not ashamed? And what would it look like to be somebody who is ashamed of the gospel? Now, properly speaking, and most of you already know this, and I could probably do this in Q&A form, but just for the sake of keeping us all together and for those who may not have heard, the word gospel itself literally means good news. The gospel is good news, and as one of the theologians that I appreciate, Michael Horton, has suggested, it is good news, it's not good advice. In other words, properly speaking, the gospel is not tips about how we are supposed to live our lives. God has done that. He's given us a law. The gospel is not against the law, but the gospel is not the law. The gospel is not, here's how you should live. The gospel is declaration of news, particularly the news about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel, if we're going to give it a definition, would probably be something like this, although there's many different ways to define it. The gospel is a declaration of what God has done to redeem a people and to reconcile them to himself and and the restoring of his good creation through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It is news of this man, Jesus, who has come, who walked the earth, assumed our nature, lived our lives with the same trials and difficulties and temptations as we have, and yet he did it without any sin. Nevertheless, for our sake, he was crucified in our place. He was put to death, dying to that sin, and then rising again for our salvation, even as we declare in our good faith. And so simply put, we need to recognize the gospel is good news about someone else. It's not about how we are supposed to live our lives. There's implications for that. We'll see that in a moment. But fundamentally, we must always remind ourselves of what the gospel is. Now, we also need to recognize the gospel is complex, and this is where sometimes people get confused. 
It's been said this is that the gospel is, is a pool which a toddler can, so shallow that the toddler can wade in and yet deep enough that an elephant can swim. It's simple enough that, uh, to, to share with a child and profound enough that even the greatest minds in history cannot exhaust its depths. And even according to 1 Peter 1, angels marvel and never tire of looking into the truths of the gospel. It is so majestic. It is so rich. It is so beautiful. It is so complex that even though it's a simple message, it is the news of what Jesus Christ has done. The implications and the truths are more than we will ever fathom. The gospel is multidimensional, and this is, again, where some of the times people get confused. Uh, Properly speaking, when we usually talk about the gospel, we're talking about that message of Jesus' death and his resurrection so that those who believe can be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have eternal life. But you also see the phrase, that the gospel of the kingdom, that is often proclaimed as well, not just by preachers, but it's in the scriptures. There's a gospel of the kingdom. And you see the scriptures, particularly the gospels themselves, have different emphasis. Most of the synoptic gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they kind of focus on what, the, what Jesus has done and, and the restoration, making all things right, making all things new. The Apostle John deals more with the individual salvation, the implications of Jesus' death for us as individuals. They are related, but they are distinct. And as a result of those two distinctions, you have churches and preachers who tend to focus on one aspect or another. You've got some who proclaim, okay, the gospel is making everything right, so let's go out and make everything right. Let's serve the poor. Let's help the people who are in need. Let's do what is right. And in so doing, uh, that we are demonstrating the gospel. You have others, and if we err, we probably err in this side, which is to say, uh, very simply put, the gospel reminds us you're all a mess, and God came to clean up the mess in the person of Jesus Christ. And you're not going to get your mess cleaned up on your own, and, and, and so you, you need to rest in what God has provided in Jesus Christ. I, I ran across, was reminded of a, of a wonderful quote uh, this, this week uh, by uh, an old pastor and hymn writer named Augustus Toplady, and he was, was very pithy, uh, but in this particular one, he's, he makes this statement, because one of the reasons people struggle with the, the message of the gospel, that God does it all through the work of Jesus Christ, is that we like our own free will, particularly as Americans, we're really caught on that. And, you know, nobody's going to do it for me, and I decide what I'm going to do. And apparently it wasn't unique to our culture, nor our day. And top lady speaking to a, a man in his congregation one day said, a man can't even cure himself of a cold or a hurt finger by his own will, but you think you're going to cure your own soul? Try willing yourself to not have COVID. You either have it or you don't. And no matter how much you try to tell yourself you don't, that's not going to change it. And yet, you can't get rid of a virus, but somehow you're going to get rid of your own sin. And we hammer that message over and over and over again, and the good news and the freedom that comes with that. And I make no apologies for doing that. But the fact of the matter is... In erring in one side or the other, we give a distorted picture of what the gospel is because the gospel is not one or the other, it is a both and. It is the same gospel. It is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. We are reconciled. God has purchased a people through the blood of Jesus Christ so that we can be the people of God in this place, wherever it is that he plants us, at this time and throughout the world. And so each of us is 
forgiven and, and made part of God's family and commissioned to be part of the world where we live as demonstration of what the kingdom is supposed to be like. Uh, but there's also good news is this world that is such a mess is in need of somebody to fix it. And God has sent the king. The king has come and the king is coming again. He has kind of laid things out. He has a people that are his ambassadors to work things out, to live according to the way that he designed life to be lived. And he's coming back to make sure that at one day, everything will be as it should be. That may feel like a warning, but it also should feel like a wonderful encouragement that God is not out there hoping for something, but he is working his plan out. And so we see the gospel is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Redeemer, and he is the King. And both dimensions are necessary. But the gospel is complex in other ways as well, because it's the way that we experience the gospel that is complex. So we need to recognize the gospel in one dimension is a set of theological truths. The truth of who God is and what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ, which means we need to know who Jesus Christ is and we need to know what it is that he's done. Those are theological truths. That's the proper gospel. That's the news that we declare. And yet the reason that it's also good news is because we who believe experience it. And so there's an experiential dimension of the gospel by which we are forgiven of our sins. We are granted uh, peace and are able to experience peace regardless of our circumstance as the Holy Spirit is at work within us, not only at work in helping us to die to sin, but applying the gospel. That's kind of what Paul is dealing with here. He's saying the gospel is the power. And so we experience that power when we believe it and the Holy Spirit is at work. There's an experiential dimension to the objective theological news. And then the gospel also has implications for the way we're supposed to live our lives. We're told to continually look to the gospel and align ourselves with the truth of God, which then empowers us to live the way that we're supposed to live. So there's at least three dimensions that way. My, one of my favorite theological words, triperspectivalism, I took from John Frame, who, you know, Steve Cummings' uh, an uncle I found out sometime later. So blame Steve Cummings and his uncle for my using of that word. But it's important that we understand, not that you're tracking with all of this, but just even if you get nothing right now other than The gospel is both simple and it is complex at the same time. And because of the complexity, we sometimes get confused about it. And we are prone to reduce in our minds the idea of the gospel to one or a couple of the different aspects, the different dimensions of it, rather than recognizing. And that's where the whole illustration of the blind man and the elephant comes in. Many people are comfortable with the whole idea of the experiential. They like the forgiveness part and the feeling of freedom that comes with that. And others like the idea of demonstrating what it means to be, but have no interest in learning more and more about the significance of what Jesus has done. And there are others, and they usually join in the PCA or OPC or other churches like us. They come and they want to learn all the theology. They may not want to do anything, but they want to know the theology of it behind it. Uh, And so we reduce the gospel in some way to what we're comfortable with, what we prefer, or sometimes what we are good at doing. Because it's difficult to understand at times, and it's difficult to truly believe. And we can try all of our might to believe, but Scripture tells us, Our belief is a gift that comes from God, and yet we continue to try. 
maybe those of us who are theologically minded uh, the most, but I think it's also an effort to try to live out the gospel. Or sometimes you'll hear the phrase, be the gospel, which is impossible because Jesus himself is the gospel. I love what Martin Luther said, because I think the picture uh, meets my own experience. He said, trying to believe the gospel is like a drunk man trying to ride a horse always falling off to one side or the other. And the one side is, tends to be kind of moralism or legalism. Here's how we're supposed to live. The other side tends to be relativism. In other words, well, I don't seem to be able to measure up to the way things are, and God's grace will forgive me, so you know, how I live must not really, really matter. Uh, those tend to be the two sides of the horse to, to which we fall off, and there's multiple expressions of those things. But both of those would be counterfeits to the true gospel. And a counterfeit gospel, as it permeates the church and the world, has a tendency to devalue the impact of the true gospel in the lives of the people who profess to believe it. Arthur Trevin Wax uh, uses an illustration about a federal plot to diminish the Confederate economy during the Civil War. And, and what he uh, records in, in this is he said that the, the Union strategist infused the Southern economy with a load of counterfeit Confederate money. And the effect was to water down the financial stability, which caused, a tr caused tremendous harm to the economy and therefore weakened the Confederacy as a whole. Counterfeits look a lot like the reality, which is why people accept them. But counterfeits, when they are present, they water things down, they devalue, they disempower um, the real thing. And when we are prone to accept the gospel in any reduced form, we are embracing a counterfeit of the gospel Therefore, watering down the impact in our own lives, in our community, and the impact that it may have in the community that we are trying to serve. A counterfeit gospel is no gospel at all. And there's a number of different expressions of that, and I won't go into them right now because it's not my, my primary point this morning, and we can come back to that. But we just need to recognize what is the gospel? Recognize the gospel is both simple and yet it is complex. Its complexity is challenging to us, and it makes it hard, difficult for us to, to understand and therefore to believe. And, and so we're prone and we're comfortable with the counterfeits to reduce gospels, which then limit the impact of the gospel in our lives. So now we ask the question is, well, what does it mean and what would it look like to be ashamed of the gospel. And I would say this, it's the willingly embracing of any counterfeit gospel for our lives or what we are to declare. When we are willing to embrace any reduced expression of the gospel, simply because it's easier for us to grasp, because it, feel, it makes us feel better, we are essentially saying that the real thing is not as good as the part.
Now, in one sense, we ought to understand this too, because this is the experience of all humanity. The Apostle Paul recognizes that, and I know he even acknowledges this as his writing when he says, look, the gospel, I'm going to paraphrase him, the gospel is foolishness to the wise, and it's a stumbling block to the religious. In other words, the gospel is so simple. See, here's how this world that we see is all in such a mess, and we can devise all the political plans we want, we can come up with all the strategy, we can do whatever, the crusades and marches, anything that you want, but none of that is actually going to have the impact that we desire for it to have. Here's how God's going to do it. He's going to send his own son, who's going to live a perfect life, and then he's going to die in a place, and then he's going to rise again from the dead. Now, even those of us who don't consider ourselves pretty wise, I have to admit, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? I mean, that's the plan? That's how everything is going to be made right in the world and in the lives, in our own hearts? And God says, that's the plan. And so those who consider themselves wise, they look at this plan and think, this is nuts. This is inadequate. And you get around enough people who believe that it's nuts and that it's inadequate, and we're tempted to not want to say, yep, but that's what I believe. We're embarrassed. We're easily embarrassed, thinking, well, maybe there's something more. I'll believe this plus something else. But it's not only just foolishness to those who consider themselves wise, it's a stumbling block to the religious. See, the religious people know, whatever the religion, that there's something is wrong, and so we need to do something. And so we do religious rituals, or we live our lives in a certain way, sacrificing certain things, engaging in other practices, and somehow thinking that in doing those, we're doing our part to fix all things. And the gospel says, you can try that all you want, but you're not going to fix it. In fact, your participation you're doing that only proves that you know that it's broken. And so the gospel is frustrating because it reminds us of our inability and even reminds us of our own guilt. And so that becomes a stumbling block. And so people are saying, I don't, I don't want that. I got enough bad news in my life. And unfortunately, the preacher in the largest church in America, this is his mantra. There's enough bad news, so we're not going to tell you. The other part. Because the gospel has an implication. It's built on the foundation that we are a mess that can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. But the idea that we're not going to declare the gospel is also akin to going to a cancer center and they're going to say, you know, you've had a bad day. I'm not going to tell you that there is a remedy, but you have to acknowledge first that you have a disease. The gospel is predicated on our understanding of our own brokenness, and we all know that. But rather than giving us steps towards wholeness, the gospel says what you need to do is actually die to yourself and believe, and then life will be granted to you as a gift. But it's just much easier and so much preferable to think that we are going to do something, and it's so deceptive sometimes that it's easy to believe that in doing, that we're doing the right thing. Let me give you an illustration of this. It came to me a few years ago. As 
some of you are aware, I played football when I was young, and when I was in college, I didn't see the field, but I did have a role. My role was to be the guy on the telephone, on the sideline, in constant communication with the coaches, and the telephone line ran from the sideline to the, to the coach's booth. I got asked when I was in college, what was I doing? I said, I'm ordering Domino's. There's a lot of people. I want my pizza when I get home. But, um, and some people bought that. But, um, so there was a constant communication. So I would get the communication and then communicate that with other guys on, on the offense. So whenever we had the ball, that was what I did. I would stand on the, literally stand on the bench so that I could see what was going on uh, and then communicate when, when they, they came off. Well, we were way ahead in one game. And at halftime, the coaches came up and said, you know, they were going to give a, a freshman who uh, hadn't dressed out for a game. It was his first game ever dressing out. And so they wanted to give him something to do. And so he was going to take the phones, fine with me. I can actually see the game. Um, and, uh, and so he was on the phones for most of the second half. And late in the fourth quarter, he came up and the coaches hadn't really sent it. I mean, we were way up. Um, I'd like to say we we're playing Alabama because we beat them all the time back then. But anyway, that's, uh, but it probably wasn't that game. Um, and so he comes and said, do I need to stay on the phone? There's like three minutes left in the game, and I said, I don't see why. So he hung up the phone, stood on the side. You know, made sense to me. There wasn't anything coming. Uh, Monday, however, the coaches had another idea. They didn't put him on, on the phone just uh, for the strategic part. They had something they wanted him to do, and it was part of the discipline and his training and things. And so as a consequence of his disobeying what he was called to do, he was sentenced to a discipline to run stadium steps, which means you run from the bottom level all the way to the top, go down to the next row, all the way down, run all the way back up. It's a stadium that had almost 100,000 seats. The coaches were pretty serious about it. Now, looking back, I also think that he wasn't living up to what they were expecting, and so they were trying to send him away, but that's a whole other issue. But I felt awful. In fact, when he was asked, where were you? He said, well, Dennis told me I didn't need to be on the phone. All of a sudden, you know, coach said, well, Dennis was on the phone. He was supposed to. And who told you to listen to him anyway? Um, and so, and I felt so awful that, and I just read something before about somebody who sacrificially, you know, embraced the penalty. So I ran with him every step. And I felt that it was uh, an identification. I thought in one sense I did it in part because of motivation of, you know, it's a witness, a testimony I care, and, Moving forward a number of years, I met my younger son's football practice, high school football practice. And one of his teammates, who is a pretty good ball player, but had come from a very dysfunctional background and was often in trouble outside of school, in school, with the coaches. And he was sentenced to run a lot. And he'd been running for a short time, and then his practice moved to a break. Our son Matthew, rather than taking the break, went over and started running with him and continued to run with him, all of it. The guy was sentenced to run the entire practice. Matthew was running. He's the team captain, so they eventually the coaches told him to stop running with him and come back in, and he told him he wanted to run, and... And he didn't like to run, but he was going to run with them. And ultimately, they came back. But I recognize what he was doing. He truly was showing compassion. He had done nothing to warrant it. He was doing it merely to identify and to experience the penalty that somebody else was experiencing in order to bring encouragement to somebody who didn't have any in their own. 
And when I saw that, when I realized what I had done years before was not the same thing. As much as I had kidded myself to think so, what I had done is I had done the work to assuage my guilt. Thinking that if I ran enough, if I did enough, if I did it enough, if I had enough, if I couched it in religious language that it's for the sake of witness so that I can show this guy I care and, you know, this is what Jesus has done for us. And all of those things on the surface were true. But at the root of the reality is a lot of other guys had to run and I never ran with them. I ran because I felt guilty. And by participating and by doing this, by paying this penalty, somehow I would assuage my guilt. There is a vast difference there between the gospel which my son demonstrated and the pretense of the counterfeit gospel which I had identified as being a virtue in my own life because I was just simply trying to make myself feel better and to look better in the eyes of other people. He was demonstrating compassion as Christ has done for us. And I share that because every one of us has that tendency to just assume a portion. If I know enough theology, if I do enough evangelism, if I go to any enough countries in terms of mission, if I'm kind enough, if I sign up for enough. Now, this is not to get you out of the sign up for the shelter for this week. Just to be clear here, you're on the hook for that. That's a whole nother. You may have spiritual issues, but you're in. Anyway, that's... um, But I've come to recognize the reason that I did that and the reason that we are so prone to do that is we are embarrassed, we are ashamed of the gospel. The gospel itself is not enough for us. And so we feel the need to add to it, to do something else, rather than to accept the promise of God that in Christ we are forgiven and we are reconciled and we are made whole. We think that we need to add something to it. And so doing, we diminish the promise that God has given to us. And so what does it look like to be ashamed of the gospel? It's to embrace a gospel that is no gospel at all by adding something to it or taking something from it rather than believing the promise of God as uncomfortable as that may be and receiving every promise that God has given to us that is ours through faith in him. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that message, but I, you know, you read his writings, you recognize he struggled in the same ways that we do. So this is a universal thing. Every one of us needs to recognize in what way are we prone to reduce the gospel, therefore creating a counterfeit gospel, that we prefer because that preference seems better than the gospel that God has given us, of which we can be very subtly ashamed. And when we come to this table, And when we come to this table, one of the things that we are doing is we're doing, taking God up on his promise and tasting and seeing that God is good. Another thing that we're doing is we are declaring the message of the gospel. So the elements of the table, Jesus said, these, are, these reflect me. This is my body that's broken. Uh, this is my blood that is shed. These are the elements, the, the shorthand pictures of the gospel that God has provided Jesus that he would die and then that he would rise again. And the scriptures tell us that each time we eat and drink at this table, we are declaring the message of the gospel to everybody who is seeing. In other words, when you eat, when you drink, you are giving testimony. This is what I believe, whether it's true or not, whether you're believing it. But this is what you're doing. You're to eat and drink is to say, this is what I believe. And so we are declaring that gospel message. The promise of God is to redeem to reconcile and forgive a people because of what Jesus has done.
but we're also declaring a message to ourselves. It's not just about the, the witness. It's not just about the encouragement that other people have. But when we come to this table and partake of the elements, we are reminding ourselves, this is the promise of God. That if I just that I recognize that Jesus died because of my sin, which I don't really like to believe, but I must. Otherwise, Jesus' death means nothing. It was just a show but not for a real purpose. But since we know that we're told that Jesus died for a real purpose and he identified and he tells us to eat and to drink and to do this frequently so that we are reminded, not just hear, but taste, our senses are involved in being reminded of the gospel. By eating and drinking, we're reminding ourselves that this is the promise of God and so forth. This is the hope. And it's a direct challenge to any other counterfeit gospels that we are prone to believe. It's a direct question. Do you believe this gospel? By God's grace, we can answer yes. But at the same time, every one of us struggles in another way, and that is one of the things that we confess. Is Lord, I believe, but I struggle to believe. Help my unbelief. And we come to this table, and we feed on the grace of our God. We remind ourselves that Jesus had to die because we couldn't save ourselves. He was willing to die because of a love that we can't comprehend, but is very real. That is the truth that we believe and is the truth that we can experience. And as the Apostle Paul says, and that truth is powerful, that can change us in heart and mind, and ultimately in life.